If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Welcome to the History Extra podcast. Fascinating historical conversations from BBC History Magazine and BBC History Revealed. The decade and a half between the end of the First World War and the rise of Nazism is one of the most debated and mythologised periods of German history. The democratic Weimar Republic was a time of great political instability, but is also renowned for its liberal social attitudes and cultural achievements. For today's Everything You Wanted to Know episode, we're joined by Professor Frank McDonough, author of A New History of Weimar Germany, to tackle your questions and popular search queries about this brief democratic episode. Putting the questions to him was Rob Attar. If we could begin with quite a basic but important question, what was the Weimar Republic? The Weimar Republic was the government that was set up at the end of the First World War as Kaiser Wilhelm abdicated and a a new German government was proclaimed in Berlin on the 9th of November. Two days later, there was the armistice and Kaiser Wilhelm eventually did flee into exile in uh, the Netherlands. Um, So it it was a democratic government that was in power in those years, 1918 to 1933, when Hitler came to power, and he basically destroyed 
all of the democratic rights that were set up in the Weimar uh, Republic. And I wonder if we could just briefly talk about what the political situation was before Weimar. What kind of form of government did Germany have in the years up to 1918? Germany had a, a partial democracy. The Reichstag couldn't pass laws. Only the Kaiser was allowed to pass laws, but it did. It could vote on on laws. But there was another ingredient: the Kaiser had a veto over the Reichstag. So the Reichstag really was a kind of, it was democratic, but not so much democratic. But it was probably as democratic as Britain was, because remember, no women had the vote in Britain, and no working class people over the age of 21 had the vote, unless they fulfilled some kind of property qualification. So it, it wasn't uh, what you would say, a, a dictatorship. But of course, the nature of the constitution under the Kaiser meant that he could stop laws. So you could say it was di- underlying dictatorial. And many of the parties of the Weimar period were kind of offshoots of the earlier Wilhelmine political parties. Now, we had a question came in from uh, Deal Gaboy on Instagram and they wanted to know simply why was it called the Weimar Republic? It was called the Weimar Republic because the constitution was declared in, in the city of Weimar, which had a great tradition of democracy in the uh, 19th century. So they decided to declare the uh, constitution there in August of 1919. It actually, its official title was the, the German Reich, So it didn't really change from the previous designation. But everybody called it the Weimar Republic. And it was a republic because they did away with the the monarchy. And who was it who set up the Weimar Republic? It wasn't imposed by the the Allies, was it? It, This came from Germany. Well, what happened was, towards the end of the war, the chiefs of staff, who were Paul von Hindenburg and Erich Ludendorff, in the August of that year, they decided that they couldn't defend the Western Front anymore, and they told the sitting German government that they needed to go to the Allies and ask for a peace settlement. They asked them to go to Woodrow Wilson, who was the US president, because he'd issued these 14 points as a basis for a peace settlement. And so they were trying to sort of bypass the British and the French in order to try and get a better deal out of the Americans. And so what happened in that interim, as they decided they were going to sue for peace, there was a, a sort of explosion of democracy in the in the Reichstag, and they, a government was formed uh, with Prince Max von Baden, uh, who was a kind of liberal, but he brought in the Social Democrats and the socialist wing of the Social Democrats into government for the first time to try and say, look, we're making a clean break with the past. And so it was kind of the Social Democrats who started to emerge as the key figures in the early part of the Weimar Republic. They were socialists, but they were a little bit like the British Labour Party in the sense that they didn't want to overthrow the state, whereas they had a left-wing group of them called the United Social Democrats who did want to overthrow the existing form of government. And they wanted, you know, like workers' councils on the style of the Soviet Union. So there was a kind of tension within the Social Democrats already 
as the Weimar Republic was getting set up. And that would be a problem in the Weimar Republic because this socialist wing, extreme wing, would be at odds with this social reforming wing, this moderate wing of the social democrats. But it really was kind of the the two key social democrats who, 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 were, who were set up the, the Weimar Republic. That was uh, uh, Friedrich Ebert and uh, Philipp Scheidemann. Um, and they were the two key figures who declared that the Weimar Republic and wanted it to be wholly democratic. The extreme wing of the Social Democrats didn't want free elections. They wanted these socialist councils in factories to rule. Now, I had a question from the Possumator on Instagram. They wanted to know, did Weimar ever have a chance to succeed with the conditions that had been imposed on Germany? I think it was always going to be very difficult. The Germans had never had democracy before, so it was completely new. They didn't purge the army completely. They left the army sort of general staff in power. They weren't supposed to be in power. The Allies wanted them removed, but they were never removed. So they became a kind of power behind the power, if you if you like. So there was that aspect already. The public were not used to democracy either, so it was unclear how the public would take to it. In a sense, there was a lot of, of uh, detachment from democracy. Nobody was sort of screaming about how great it was to have democracy. They had a constitution day every year, but very few people attended it. It wasn't really that popular. They had to get school children to come along in school parties to make it look more popular. So there was already a problem. And of course, the communists wouldn't accept this democratic situation, but nor would the right-wing renegade members of the army. At the end of the war, there were sort of, you know, millions of Germans, ex-soldiers, wandering around the streets with no jobs, still armed, and, and a lot of them joined what was called the Freikorps, which was a kind of Wagner group of its day at that time. And that group tended to be brought in to defend the Republic by the existing democratic powers, which was not really a good look, was it, to have this kind of mercenary army sort of making sure you didn't fall from power. So the early period of the Weimar Republic was tumultuous, really. There was an attempted coup by the left, led by Rosa Luxemburg and Karl Liebknecht in Berlin, and that was suppressed by the Freikorps. Liebknecht and Luxemburg were brutally killed, shot in the head, both of them. She was thrown in a local canal. So that, that created bitterness with the uh, social democratic government because it was known that Herbert had brought in these Freikorps to suppress that revolution. So the left then called the, the government in power social fascists because they'd done that. And then in 1920, the army had to go. A renegade uh, army general called Wolfgang Kapp, he seized Berlin and he declared himself chancellor and the government had to go into exile in Dresden. It only lasted five days. But what was interesting about that was it was saved by a general strike by the workers. When Herbert asked the army for support, the reply was, um, we don't like to shoot on fellow soldiers. So in a sense, the army was sort of waiting to see what, what happened there. And also there was a rebellion in Munich 
led by the communists and and that and that was uh, put down in May and there was some brutal killings in that as well and of course if you move on a bit later towards 1923 Hitler makes a bid for power in uh, Bavaria with his famous Munich beer hall pooch so it was a tumultuous period somehow it survived the Weimar Republic in the early period. It was put under more pressure by economic problems, the Great Inflation, and of course the Treaty of Versailles, which ordered Germany to pay billions of pounds in reparations to the Allies. And Germany really couldn't pay and didn't pay. Yeah, the Treaty of Versailles is obviously a really big part of this story. How much of a shadow does that cast over the early Weimar Republic? I think it casts a large shadow because internationally, Germany keeps arguing that it can't pay these reparations. And the French government takes a belligerent stand and says, you've got to pay these reparations. You've bombed our country to the ground and we need this money. So there was that tension, really. Britain tended to be on the sidelines of that and trying to say, look, you know, we don't want to go too brutal on the Germans because we want them to reintegrate into the world economy. So Britain was sort of in the middle, really, didn't really back the French up in that way. And the Americans wanted to stay on the sidelines. They didn't want to get involved in it. There were all kinds of conferences where the Germans wrangled over paying. Then they defaulted on payments again and again uh, until... The Germans accepted a group of experts to decide on the level of payments. And that was backed up by American loans. And it was called the Doors Plan, came out in 1924. And that brought a period of stability in Germany. The middle period, if you like, 1924 to 29, was quite stable with these loans underpinning the Doors Plan. But of course, if these loans dried up, they'd be back in the same situation. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Oh, it's such a clutch pickup, Dave. I was worried we'd bring back the same team. I meant those blackout motorized shades. Blinds.com made it crazy affordable to replace our old blinds. Hard to install? No, it's easy. I installed these and then got some for my mom, too. She talked to a design consultant for free and scheduled a professional measure and install. Hall of Fame son. They're the number one online retailer of custom window coverings in the world. Blinds.com is the GOAT. The GOAT. Go to Blinds.com for up to 45% off. Blinds.com. Rules and restrictions may apply. And actually, just before that kind of economic recovery, there are a couple of interesting moments I'd like to talk to you about. And one of them comes from a question from Terence Anthony on Facebook. And he said, can you tell us about the occupation of the Royal Valley? 
To what extent did this encourage extremism and anti-Weimar feeling? Well, the, the occupation of the Ruhr Valley grew out of that situation I just talked about there, this kind of constant defaulting on payments. The French eventually got, got fed up with this and they said Germany had defaulted on timber payments and coal payments in kind. And so on the 10th of January, they occupied the Ruhr, the industrial heartland of Germany, with the Belgians. And so this was a, you know, a huge moment, really, uh, in 1923. And the Germans responded. They didn't respond by wanting to negotiate with the French. They responded with a policy called uh, passive resistance and this involved going on strike, basically. And the Germans did something amazing. The government, they paid people to do nothing. It was a, it was an early example of furlough, if you like. So there was huge amounts of money. It was extremely costly to carry on this passive resistance. But of course, a government carrying on a policy of resistance that was akin to a nationalist movement like the you know the Indian nationalist movements this this was inconceivable outside of Germany it just revealed that Germany were really wouldn't accept this Treaty of Versailles and it was a brutal occupation in a way you know there was about thousand people were killed the French seized all of the local uh, railways and some of the railways were blown up by by insurgents as well. So it was a, it was a terrible moment in the, the, the Weimar Republic. And because, of course, Germany was paying these enormous sums of furlough for passive resistance, the inflation took off experientially, if you like, in 1923. Prices went up, um, you know, things like a cup of coffee, you know, a cup of coffee could cost six, 600 marks when you picked it up. By the time you pay for it, it was 900 marks. There's a famous story about a woman who took a, 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 a suitcase full of marks to the butchers. She put them outside, went in to get her meat, came out. The suitcase had gone, but all the currency was there because it, because it was worthless. People made wallpaper out of the the worthless German marks. So on the front of my book, you can see kids playing with uh, German marks. They were so worthless at that time. So there was that going on as well. And then towards the end of 1923, the German's uh, chancellor, Gustav Stressemann, he decides passive resistance should be over. And from that comes a new mark, uh, an interim currency called the Rentenmark, replaced by the, the German Reichsmark the next year. And the inflation crisis is over, and the Dawes plan helps that on its way. Now, Stressemann is a really important figure, isn't he, in Weimar Germany? What can you tell us about him? Gustav Stressemann is probably, you know, a, an unknown figure to, to your listeners. But really, in my book, he's a dominant figure. He is the biggest German leader of the 1920s. He's the German foreign minister. Sadly, he had heart problems, poor health, but he was a far-sighted politician. He was originally a nationalist and a monarchist, but then he gradually, as he sees the Weimar chaos, he gradually realised the best thing for Germany to do is to come to terms with France, try and reconciliate with France. And in that way, Germany can probably settle down and maybe then get revisions of the Treaty of Versailles. So he was very far-sighted. And look at all the things that he did. He got out of passive resistance. 
He negotiates at the end, eventually, of the occupation by the French and Belgians in, in, in 1930. He also signed the Locarno Treaties, which agreed to, to Germany's western frontiers as set out in the Treaty of Versailles. It was said they'd never agree to those, but they did. They accepted the demilitarized zone then. Then he joined the League of Nations, and again that gave Germany much more credibility in the world. And then he signed the Kellogg-Briand Pact, in which Germany, which had been a warmonger before the First World War, renounces war. So Stresemann was an enormous figure. Sadly, uh, his illnesses went on. Sometimes he's at these peace conferences with his doctor, who's saying you can't speak for too long. But he did reconciliate Germany with France and with the, with the rest of the world. And Germany was in a respectable position in 1929, and he died. And he left the scene. And you've got to wonder, you know, what would have happened if Stresemann, a, a figure of that towering ability, would still have been there to advise Hindenburg. The course of history might have been different. And actually, on this subject of international relations, I'd be interested to know what kind of relationship Weimar Germany had with the Soviet Union. Well, this, <laughs> this was the interesting thing, because... Stresemann thought the, the, the Germans were pinned in by the Western Allies. They didn't have much latitude to, to sort of do anything in the world. So he decided he'd go closer towards the Soviet Union, you know, as a bulwark against the, you know, the Western sort of uh, bullying of Germany. And he signed the Treaty of Rapallo. In, in 1922, he signed further treaties on trade, further treaties on diplomacy, that they uh, agreements that they wouldn't go to war with one another. Well, what the, what the, what was involved in those treaties was secret deals with the army and the aircraft industry to train pilots in Russia and to, to gain secret rearmaments as well of armaments. So really, that was what where the Russian angle came in. Interestingly enough, that kind of angle was always there in the 20s. And if you look in the 30s, it ends up, doesn't it, with a resurgence of that sort of German-Soviet agreement in, in the Nazi-Soviet pact. And just coming on to look at the Weimar government itself... Which were the main political parties operating within it? Well, the main political parties are of the of the coalitions, and and there were twenty different coalitions during the Weimar period. There were twelve different chancellors. There were eight different national elections. So it had to be a coalition. The Social Democrats couldn't rule on their own. Early on, it was the Social Democrats who were the the main party. Then there was the what was called the Catholic Centre Party, and that remained relatively stable. That was sort of voted on by Catholics, and Catholics didn't like Nazism, so they stayed loyal in that way. Then there was the DDP. They were German liberals as well. Then the uh, DVP, which was Stressman's party, and a people's party, but conservative in that way. Then there was the main Conservative Party called the DNVP, and that moved more and more to the right and didn't take part in many of the coalitions. After 1923, the Social Democrats wouldn't participate in the coalitions, even though they always held the balance of power and could bring them down. So in that period, the coalition mainly became the DDP, the Liberals, the Catholic Centre Party, and Stressman's party, the, D the DVP. But none of them ever had a kind of overall majority in the Reichstag, so they always needed the Social Democrats to get legislation through. And you alluded earlier to the 
role of the president. Did the president fit within any of the political parties or were they separate from them? Well, the German constitution held out that Germany should have proportional representation. Now, this allowed, and 60,000 seats got you a seat in the Reichstag. And unfortunately, this allowed, of course, extreme parties to get into the Reichstag, gave them credibility they wouldn't have. Look at the British system first past the post. We've not had a, a fascist party get, gain any kind of seat uh, like the National Front in the 1970s. It never gained a single seat in Parliament. We once had a couple of communist MPs, and that's the only really extreme parties we've ever had in the House of Commons. Now, with this proportional representation, it allowed these extreme parties a foot up, if you like. The really bad thing about the Constitution, and it wasn't meant this way, it was, it was designed to have checks and balances between the Reichstag and the President's, but they gave the presidents enormous power, especially in emergency situations. They created a clause called Article 48 of the Constitution, and this allowed the president to suspend civil rights, suspend public order, uh, demonstrations, and also to actually suspend the Reichstag if he wanted to. And of course, this was a ticking time bomb, if you like, for democracy, really. Now, Friedrich Herbert did use Article 48. He used it numerous times, nearly 140 times, but he never wanted to destroy the Constitution. He was a Republican in that way. But when Paul von Hindenburg, who became the president in 1925, a former military leader, when he started to suspend the Weimar Constitution after 1930, he did so to do away with the Reichstag and to actually make laws himself by sanctioning them under Article 48 and getting a kind of puppet prime minister in the Reichstag to enact this legislation. So that's when Weimar's democracy was undermined, but it was made possible by the Constitution. Now, we had a question that came in about the Nazis from NCOS72 on Instagram, and they asked, did the Weimar state try to stop the Nazis? Well, early on they did. You know, early on they banned the Nazi party, uh, very early on. It, it was banned, and it was banned from sort of public demonstrations early on as well. And then, of course, when the Nazis were involved in the Munich Beer Hall uh, putsch, the, the party was banned altogether then, and it didn't sort of reconvene until 1926. And Hitler was banned from public speaking altogether. He didn't start speaking again until 1927. So they did, I mean, in, in the Weimar Republic, they did ban the stormtroopers for a little while, but then they, they gave them back the, the power to go on the streets and bully people. So they did, they did try. And th there was kind of anti-demonstration laws that were brought in after 1930, which tried to stop the Nazis wearing uniforms. Then they were banned for a little while as well. So they did make an effort to deal with the Nazis and the communists as well. But it was very difficult because, of course, there was violence between the communists and the Nazis in public meetings and so on. But it couldn't be said that they, they didn't try to stop the Nazis. They did. The Social Democrats propped up Bruning's government because he was making clear he didn't want to bring the Nazis into his government. So I don't think we can blame the Social Democrats. We can blame Hindenburg, and I do blame Hindenburg in my book. And on a related note, we had a question from Ado Muhammad on Facebook, and he says, 
How much did the army contribute to the growth of right-wing politics? The army did contribute to the growth of right-wing parties in the sense they had a close relationship with the Freikorps. I mean, as I said before, you know, that they used them to put down a left-wing revolt in Munich. They used them again to put down a left-wing revolt in, um, in, in Cologne. So they were using the right-wing Freikorps for their own purposes. I don't think they particularly as well wanted to suppress the uh, Freikorps in, in Munich and the Bavarian area. They kept saying, oh, they're too strong, we can't go in. That was before the Munich Beer Hall push where they were sitting on the silence saying, look, we can't put this revolt down, we haven't got enough troops to do it. You know, because the German army was restricted in the number of troops that it had, so it was a, it was a fair point. So by using these kind of mercenaries, it made it easier for them. And the Allies, of course, were dead set against this. So I would say the German army was, was in favour, if you like, of a kind of right-wing government. They probably wanted the monarchy back, really, and they supported Hindenburg more than they supported the Nazis. But some of them, towards the end of Weimar, 1930 to 33, some of the army actively started to engage with Hitler that, you know, he could be good for the army by sanctioning rearmament, revising the Treaty of Versailles. They were well aware of that. We had a question from Wade Botts on Facebook, and that was, was the Republic widely accepted throughout Germany? Were there any particular areas that favoured a return to independence or monarchy? There were strong monarchy movements. I mean, if you could look at the political parties, the DNVP was in favour of pro-monarchy. That had about 13% of the vote. The DVP members supported pro-monarchy. They had about 8%. So there were elements uh, in the electorate that that, that favoured monarchy and uh, favoured getting rid of the republic, really. I think a good way of looking at it is at the start of the republic, the parties who supported the republic made up about 72% of the seats in the Reichstag in the 19 elections. But in 1932 election, 52% supported parties that were against the republic. And I think really... The real problem was that the the coalition governments were unstable. Governments just came and went in a cascade. Nobody knew who the chancellor was. The chancellors, you know, as I said, there were 12 different chancellors. Nobody knew who they were. They were all faceless people. They, They didn't have the support of a political party. That was where Hitler was a bit different. He was the leader of a political party that had large support. There was no politician like that before and also people knew that these coalitions couldn't survive for long and people lost faith in the Reichstag they kept saying oh why can't they agree on anything so in a way the political system the way it operated made it easier for the public to turn against it by saying it's completely unstable we've given up the Kaiser for this completely ramshackle system where people can't come to an agreement and they need about six parties to form a coalition so it it lost credibility gradually lost credibility nobody cried over the end of the Weimar Republic, we might cry now, and many other people might cry, you know, people who loved all the cabaret scene of, of that period would say, oh God, why could they destroy this wonderful, open, watching Babylon Berlin? Why could they destroy this open society? But it, it wasn't like that for the public. The majority of the public wanted rid of it, at least 51%, probably more. And actually, as an aside, 
What was the situation with the Kaiser during the Weimar Republic? Was he ever agitating to come back? Well, in the Weimar Republic and the Treaty of Versailles, there was a policy of, of bringing the Kaiser back to face a war trial, like the Nuremberg trials. They were going to put him on trial because it was quite clear that he'd started the war. So he went into uh, exile in, in the Netherlands. And the Netherlands, of course, has a monarchy and the monarchy uh, uh, refused to extradite him. So the trial of the Kaiser never went on. Occasionally he would enter politics, um, you know, to say things like, uh, you know, the Allies need to get rid of this war guilt clause that blames Germany for the war. But he, he remained in exile. And of course, he never got back. Many people really wanted him back. There was a big movement to get him back. Even Franz von Papen who was the German chancellor that, uh, that came before Schleicher and Hitler, he wanted the monarchy to be restored. Now, coming on to society in Weimar, we had a question from fgray85 on Instagram, and they simply wanted to know, what was life like for ordinary people in Weimar, Germany? I think, I think we can over-exaggerate. If you look at the books on Weimar, Germany, you'll see that most of them are on culture. Most of them are thematic. So they break it up into different parts of culture. So you'll have architecture, art, film, literature, and so on. And really, that's a kind of distortion, really, because culture did exist. And much of it was innovatory, you know, the Bauhaus movement, for example, the films of uh, Lang, you know, Metropolis, the great paintings, modern paintings by, you know, Klee and Otto Dix. But... They were a Berlin phenomenon. Mostly when we talk about culture and cabaret in Weimar, we're talking about Berlin. It's a bit like, um, do you remember in the 1960s, people talked about the summer of love. And uh, I remember uh, uh, George Harrison saying, the summer of love only existed down Carnaby Street and around all the people I went to clubs with at that time. The rest of it, nobody was involved in the summer of love. I mean, I was, what, how old was I? I was 10 in the year of the summer of love. And so there's a picture of me with a short back and side. So clearly my dad wasn't in favour of the summer of love. So I think it's one of those myths. And I think you can get taken down a kind of black blind alley by looking at those culture books because they don't talk about the politics you hear nothing about the politics nothing about the prime ministers so i'm saying go to the politics of weimar and you'll see that it gradually becomes ungovernable and that's what turns people away and and no amount of you know kate viles thripney opera and all of that they were minority tastes they were a bit like in the 70s you know when i liked heavy rock and nobody knew who these bands were <laughs> So is it fair to say then that this idea of a 1920s golden age is not widespread in Weimar Germany? No, there was there, there was a golden age in the sense of if you look back on it with hindsight, if you look back at some of the great innovations and so start to feel bad that they were all suppressed. But the, the truth is a lot of them were suppressed in that period. And so it's kind of, you know, a great flowering, but then someone stamping on the on the flowers in that way. Um, and also in rural areas as well of Germany, you know, Germany was still predominantly a rural area. There were no cabaret clubs in rural areas. Come on, there were no art galleries. You know, there was none of this going on there. So you've got a whole part of society that's not getting any of this Weimar culture. I think it's one of these myths that we need to explode, really, you know. The Weimar culture was pervading the whole of society and Hitler mainly stamped down on Weimar culture. No, he didn't. He mainly stamped down on Weimar political system. That's what he stamped down on. 
But even taking that on board, I think it must be fair to say that there was some real cultural innovation, even if it's only taking place in Berlin for a period of time. I mean, what do you think was behind that innovation? Was that happening elsewhere in Europe or was there something about Berlin in particular? I think that was the social democrats. You can't argue against the Bauhaus movement and all of the amazing uh, architecture that came out. And I mean, some would say it was all that horrible 1960s architecture that was in high-rise flats. But there was also the tea infuser, the Kandinsky chair, uh, the the egalitarian chess set, which is which is quite fun. It doesn't have any monarchical pieces. Then you've got the art of that period, I think, which had, had an influence uh, later on. No, undoubtedly, Weimar culture had an influence. Where it got its money was was from the social democratic local governments. So the social democrats and the left did support the arts. A good example is Bauhaus, which is supported by a social democrat local government. And then when the conservatives come in. In 1925, they have to move to another city because they're going to get suppressed. And then they build that big sort of Bauhaus building, which is very famous. It's one of the World Heritage sites now. So, yes, I don't I, I deny that this, this culture was important in itself. It's just that it wasn't having the influence that people think it had when they watch, you know, Cabaret and Babylon Berlin. So on that note, and I think I can guess perhaps what you'll say to this question, but Saskia Shepard on Facebook said, how subversive was the nightlife in Weimar, Germany? Well, I think, I mean, <laughs> the Berlin nightlife was incredibly subversive. I mean, you know, the, the, there was a naked dancing. There was a, a woman called uh, uh, Annika Berber. I mean, she used to appear completely naked, do incredible gyrating dances, and she'd smash champagne bottles over the heads of some of the clientele. And many of those clubs operated almost like sort of brothels, really. So the artists who appeared, and many of them were trans dressers as well, which was a, ahead of its time. You wouldn't see that in Britain at that time in that way, in that sexualized way. And it was outrageous. But it was mainly Berlin. So, to some extent, there was some of it in, in the Rhineland. But as I said before, in most of the rest of Germany, they never saw a naked dancer. They never saw a nightclub. So you've got to look at those two parts of society as well. It was a Berlin phenomenon. The guy wrote a book, didn't he? It was called Weitz, I think it was, was his name. And he, he sort of concentrates on Berlin. Everything that happens, happens in Berlin for him. I mean, he has a, a sort of introduction to his book where he walks through Berlin and it's almost as if he's in the modern period. But as people pointed out, especially in the New York Times, he got all the geography wrong. <laughs> he was walking along the wrong streets. And relating to a point you uh, touched on earlier, we had a question from Paul Burns on Facebook who said, can you tell us about the history of transgender people in Weimar Germany and how they were supported by Magnus Hirschfeld? Magnus Hirschfeld run this uh, sex, sex institute and, and he did help trans people. He did the first sexual reorientation operations as well at that time and he, he did therapy uh, movements where he didn't brand gay people for being gay, which much of that therapy did. M much of that therapy said gay people had psychiatric problems. He turned that on its head and said, no, they haven't. You know, they're, they're people in their own right and they need to have their views expressed and, and, and fairly dealt with in society. And he wanted to get rid of the anti-homosexuality law. Um, and, he, and he produced a film as well, different from others, which was the first gay film. 
years ahead of its time. I mean, there's a, the first gay film in Britain is called Victim by Dirk Bogart, where there's a blackmail plot. And in, in it's, it's copied from Different From Others because that's the, the plot of, of Different From Others. So, you know, he did really... Sh- shine a light on, on gay people, transgender issues. And in that respect, in that area, this was years ahead of its time. Now, Miss 93 Triple J on Instagram wants to know, what was life like for women in Weimar Germany? Well, I mean, people have said, you know, that Weimar Germany created a new woman, gave them more freedom. Women were given the vote for the first time, uh, age 21 and over in, in 1919, which was better than in Britain because British women didn't get the vote completely until 1928, so women had the vote. They had equal rights as well under the law, which was obviously new. Britain didn't have equal rights under the law. So some of the laws that were enacted made women more equal. Uh, Women started to to get into professions, uh, you know, the, the, the medical profession, the legal profession. They already were sort of established in the teaching profession, but more and more so in, in, in the teaching profession. They also got jobs in um, the department stores in the, in the big cities as well. They, they were in factories. Some of them rose to positions of supervisory level. And there was this thing called the new woman. The new woman was a woman who, you know, she dressed uh, very stylishly with a kind of black bob haircut. She wore transsexual clothes. So she didn't distinguish herself as a, as a woman in, the, in that sense, in the, in the accepted sense of the time. So there was this thing with the women. Now, in the book, I show that in actual fact, you know, very few women did rise up the economic scale in Weimar Germany. And this is another myth, really, that, that women did better economically. In fact, when you look at it, and I do look at all the occupational groups, and I show that really, you know, the, the only people who were independent who were women, really, were the professions like the doctors and, the, and the, the teachers, but they were so overworked that they didn't have time for this nightclub culture. Lils59 on Instagram wants to know, what was the situation of the Jewish population in Germany during Weimar? There were violent attacks on Jews periodically. It wasn't all the time, but, you know, there was a a terrible attack that I outlined that was in uh, 1923, took place in Berlin, where shops were beaten up. And in that area, they were mostly uh, unassimilated Jews, you know, from Eastern Europe, what they used to call Eastern Jews, you know, who looked like those Eastern European Jews, and they were easy targets, and they were beaten up at that time. I also talk about how Jewish women tried to hide their identity, you know, by sort of dyeing their hair uh, blonde, going to resorts and pretending to be Gentiles. So, yes, anti-Semitism was rife in the political parties. I mean, the DNVP, Alfred Hugenberg, was a, he was an anti-Semite and went on about the Jews. Hitler, of course, well, as he grew more powerful, we got to know more about anti-Semitism. So anti-Semitism was kind of bubbling up. It was under the surface. It wasn't like the level when Hitler came to power. But you could see from some of the things that happened, there was already anti-Semitism there, especially among the sort of uh, right that existed in the big cities, because that's where the Jews lived. Moving on to the end of the Republic, When and how did Weimar Germany finally come to an end? Well, it was a kind of process of demolition, really. People think, oh, it came to an end with Hitler. 
But it really came to an end in 1930, March 1930, when the Social Democratic government wanted to increase taxes for the national insurance system and Hindenburg wouldn't let them. He wouldn't use Article 48 to do it. And so he he appointed Heinrich Brüning, who was not a leader of a political party. He was the speaker of of the Reichstag for the Catholic Centre Party. And uh, in background, he was kind of like, he had some trade union background as well. So he became what was known as a presidential chancellor. The president ruled through Article 48 and Bruning went to the Reichstag, put his laws through and told the Reichstag, even if you vote them down, the president will enact them tonight. And, um, you know, he caused the election of 1930, which brought Hitler to, to great support in that, in that election. But it was that moment, really, where he started moving away from the Reichstag. And then in 1932, he decided to get rid of uh, Heinrich Brüning, and he replaced him with Franz von Papen, who produced the famous Cabinet of Barons. These were people with no representation whatsoever. And he became much more right-wing. He suppressed the Prussian parliament, which was led by the Social Democrats. So that ended the local government citadel of, of the uh, Social Democrats. And he was replaced by Kurt von Schleicher, who couldn't get a majority in the Reichstag either. And then they decided, because Franz von Papen decided to influence Hindenburg to bring Hitler to power. So the Weimar Republic, it's already dead. This is what people don't realise. It's already dead well before Hitler comes to power. Hitler is given power on the basis that he runs a coalition that's favourable to the right wing and to the ideas of Hindenburg. But Hindenburg won't make him a presidential chancellor. That's interesting. That means he won't enact laws for him. He wants the laws to go through the Reichstag again. So from there, he lets Hitler... Un, you know, unravel the Weimar Republic. So we get, you know, the banning of political parties, the Enabling Act, which comes out in 1933, which suspends the power of Parliament and turns it over to Hitler. And then when Hindenburg dies, Hitler combines the post of President and Chancellor into leader, which supreme leader, which was Führer. So it's a kind of disintegration, if you like. Democracy sort of dies a slow terminal death from 1930 and the real execution is Hindenburg he doesn't want democracy so is it fair to say that the Weimar leaders in the last few years bear a heavy responsibility for the transformation of Germany into a Nazi dictatorship yes absolutely yes I think well I think they couldn't do much the problem was that they couldn't do much about it because what really was important was that Hindenburg had the constitution in which to suspend Parliament. So the political parties, the Social Democrats towards the end were trying to get Hindenburg impeached, which would have worked, but they didn't get that off the ground. But in a way, I would say that it's the German people who helped to bring Hitler to power because in totally free elections in 1932, 13 million Germans vote for the Nazi party 
And it's that group of people and it gives them, you know, 232 seats, 37% of the electors. It's that group of people who put Hitler in the position where he can be offered the chancellorship. So in other words, the German people have to bear a responsibility for that, just as they do for the Holocaust. They turned a blind eye to anti-Semitism as well. So the German people put Hitler in the position where he got the power. The political parties couldn't do anything about it. And he got there democratically. No, we can't argue. We can say, well, he got there democratically. Okay, they invited him into power, but he was the leader of the largest political party. In most countries, that person does become the leader. In our system, the king asked the, the person who's got the largest grouping in the House of Commons to come to Buckingham Palace. So it wasn't unreasonable to, to, to bring Hitler into power, given that he was the leader of a political party with a large amount of support. The first leader who had that kind of support since 1918. And how much of this surge in popularity for Hitler and the Nazis can be attributable to the Wall Street crash and the economic shock that followed? Well, if you read all the books on Weimar Germany, they nearly all go on about the Wall Street crash being sort of, if you like, it's the thing that leads the German people towards Hitler. It's that. It's the Wall Street crash. It's the economic crash of 1929. But it wasn't. It's it's one of the big myths of this period. I've, I've outlined a few myths here along, along the way. But this is one of the biggest myths. The Wall Street crash didn't immediately affect Germany at all. It only affected Germany a couple of years later when the industrial exports collapsed. In the interim, when Hitler was getting his support, we can look at it, we can look at his speeches. If you look at Hitler's speeches in the 1930 German national election, you'd think, well, it's all full of the Wall Street crash. Look at what these Jewish capitalists have done to us. They've destroyed the world economy. Hitler doesn't mention it. He doesn't mention economics at all. He mentions what I've been going on about. He mentions the corrupt political system run by what he says are the November criminals, the people who created the Weimar Constitution. He blames them. He says, this system doesn't work. We need to get rid of this system before we can deal with the problems of economics and society and all the rest of it. So he says, the system's corrupt. The only thing that can save it is a strong leader doing away with political parties. But something must have happened between, say, the mid-1920s and the early 1930s, that led to a surge in support for the Nazis, the communists. If it's not the Wall Street crash, what, what is it? Is it just the political instability? What it is, mainly, is the rural areas don't benefit from the, the industrialization. They haven't got strong trade unions, so they can't keep their wages up. The commodities of agricultural products are going down and down and down. And we see the breakout between 1924, when Germany is supposed to be stable. The cities are stable, but not the rural areas. We see a growth of these small splinter parties, the middle class party, the farmers party, the agrarian party. So there's a whole swathe of people on the right of German politics in the rural areas who feel as though they're not getting a good deal out of the Weimar system. And so it's they who turn against the system. And when Hitler breaks through, most of his votes come from rural areas with populations less than 5,000s, from Protestants, 
uh, and people who've never voted before and people who switch from these small interest parties to say, oh, look, and now I've got a voice. So it's that which changes, not the, the uh, Wall Street crash. They don't know anything about that. They do know that the rural areas have suffered under the Weimar system. And then looking beyond 1933, how has the reputation of Weimar Germany changed over subsequent decades? Well, I think the reputation of Weimar Germany stands high. If you keep writing books about the culture of Weimar Germany, then you start to say, wow, it had all this innovation. Why was it destroyed? What was its legacy? So in that respect, you'd say that people's interest in the Weimar Republic has gone up. But it hasn't gone up towards the real problems that were occurring in Weimar, like the political system and the problems of the rural areas and why the rural areas were important, where there were no cabarets and Bauhaus movements and whatever. It's that really, it's that dichotomy between the way people view it. I would say Weimar has become a kind of nostalgia um, a little bit like this 1960s has become a kind of nostalgia or the 1970s. With nostalgia, you take out the bits of real history and you focus on the bits that were nice. So in the 1970s, you just show ABBA videos and say, wow, it must have been fantastic then. And of course, ABBA were in Sweden. <laughs> they weren't even in Britain, you know. You know, here we were having strikes and, you know, people weren't getting buried, you know, stuff like that. But that's the way it is. Nostalgia's big and a lot of dramas and that are built around that nostalgia. Yes, the nostalgia's great. Cabaret's a fantastic film. But remember, it ends right at the end with, uh, you know, that, that photo where the singer ends the cabaret. And in the mirror, you can see all the Nazi stormtroopers in, in, in the background. I think Weimar's reputation for, you know, enlightened social reform still persists. People still look back and say, yeah, they had some good ideas about health reform. They introduced the comprehensive national insurance system, which was uh, copied later by, by the British and others. So there's lots to take out from Weimar. And Weimar was democratic at, at its core. It was democratic. And of course... Nazism was, you know, totalitarian and horrible. So that's why it's it's persisted. It's a fascinating. I'm trying to do a comprehensive history here. I'm trying to mainly cover the politics because you don't know about the politics. You don't know about all of that. So I'm trying to bring that to the foreground, the diplomacy, bring up people like Stresserman, Walter Rathenau, take out those visionaries out of it and say, look, they did have some skilled politicians who made a difference even at the time. And to play down the Hitler and not say Hitler wasn't always dominant. It wasn't always certain. I don't think Weimar survived, but I think it was to do with the German people. The German people didn't like the democracy that they got, and they didn't like this kind of constant, unstable coalition situation. And that really is what drove the German people against it. And the German people did go against the Weimar Republic. And although we say, oh, you know, Hitler was just sort of brought to power by the back stairs. The important point is that the German people put him in that position. So Frank, out of everyone, who do you feel was most to blame for the downfall of Weimar Germany? I think we could have a long list of people to blame. You know, Friedrich Herbert shouldn't have allied himself with these renegades in the Freikorps early on. That set a bad example. The army and the judiciary in that, you know, they should have been purged. 
so that they weren't favourable to the the right-wing people who came before them. I think most to blame, though, was President Hindenburg, because President Hindenburg deliberately destroyed the Constitution by using Article 48 in a way that it was not meant to be used. It was not meant to be used to destroy the Reichstag. In fact, the Constitution said the Reichstag should be always sovereign. But he had this ability by saying it was a crisis to do that. Then he appointed these kind of puppet rulers, Bruning, followed by Franz von Papen, followed by Schleicher, and they got worse and worse and worse. So that kind of opened the door to Hitler in a way, because Hitler could say, well, at least I'm the leader of the largest party and the most popular civilian politician in Germany. I would blame Hindenburg for not really accepting the defeat. He never accepted the defeat of the First World War. He really wanted to bring back the Kaiser and he wanted to overturn the Treaty of Versailles and he wanted a popular dictatorship and he didn't raise an ounce of protest as Hitler broke down the Weimar Republic when he brought in the Enabling Act and destroyed the political parties. So, the grave digger, President Hindenburg. That was Frank McDonough. His book, The Weimar Years, Rise and Fall, 1918-1933, has recently been published by Apollo. Frank will be returning to the podcast in the next few weeks to discuss the 1923 Munich Putsch as we reach its centenary. You can also read his piece on the Putsch in the December issue of BBC History magazine, which is on sale soon. Thanks for listening to the History Extra podcast. This podcast was produced by Brittany Colley.